Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and this is the 500-something time that I said that. Oh, yeah? We're not into the 60s yet, are we? No, no. It's going to be a little while. What are we, mid-fives? Yeah, I don't know. Like, we hit 500, what, around January, end of January. It's a lot of knowledge we're doling out for free, folks. Yeah, we're like, <laughs> we're in like like 520, maybe. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought it might be more than that. Um, you doing okay? I'm great. Good. How are you? Okay, like my back hurts a little bit, and Yumi's convinced that it's a kidney infection onset, so she's like, you need to drink a lot of apple cider vinegar and baking soda diluted in water and cranberry juice. That's what I'm doing. And water. Yeah, that one too. But I've got stuff diluted in water, so that counts. Yeah. But it's kind of rough. You know, I don't know that your coffee counts as water. No, it does actually. You know does the it? the whole you should drink eight eight ounce glasses of water a day. You can factor in coffee. Yeah, and it's totally made up. Like there's no one's ever said that you really should do that. It just kind of came on as like an early meme, uh-huh. I guess. And there's no there's not any evidence that an adult human living in a temperate climate of average health couldn't survive without any additional water on a daily basis because we get it from things like food. And other stuff. I think the idea is that you benefit from drinking water. Uh, again, there's not necessarily any scientific evidence that, that you backs benefit that from up. drinking water. It's pretty much made up. I'm not so sure about I'm that. I'm telling you, look I'll it up. Back to you okay, then. all right. We'll have a look up off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's not what this is about, Chuck. Nor is it about my possibly um, a impending kidney infection and hospitalization. Uh-huh. It is about the idea that everyone around the world. Uh, deserves to make a decent, sustainable living wage. Agreed. Or should at the very least get a, the, should see the fruits of their labor in a fair way. Yeah. This kind of flies in the face of something called um, capitalism, the free market system. A little bit. Because in the free market system, one of the big things you have is pretty much every man for himself. Now, everyone in a free market system, a completely theoretical, unfettered free market system, has the opportunity to enjoy the fruit of his or her labors, has the opportunity to make a decent livable wage. But one could also argue that the balance of power has tipped so far in favor of a a consolidated, internationally connected few that that's just not a real possibility anymore. That theory, that theoretical version is now an impossibility. Right. I think, hey, now might be a good time to recommend to people to go listen to our previous podcast, Is the Free Market Really Free? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Wasn't that the name of that one? Yeah, that yeah. was a good one. That was a good one. Um, so because this balance of power has tipped so far, post pretty much post-World War II is when it happened. Yeah. There are a, there are some people out there who have come up with the idea that maybe we should go an extra mile and make sure that the people who are actually making all the things we enjoy, for example, coffee, sure, wine, soccer balls, people who bananas, bananas, it's a big one. Yeah. People who actually make these things get a, a an income that is like something that anyone who is on the receiving end of these bananas and coffee would recognize as a livable amount of money 
in return for what they're giving us. That's right. This is not a call for communism. <laughs> no. This is a call for fair pay right. via something called fair trade. Yeah. And um, the idea is that uh, you and I and whoever else wants to support this kind of cause might not mind going into their local coffee. And we're going to use coffee a lot because that's one of the big daddies that's in fair the, trade. Yeah, that's the big daddy, right? Might not mind going into their, their coffee shop or their grocery store or wherever you hunt down your coffee and paying a little bit more for your coffee. It's got that fair trade stamp on there knowing that ultimately the worker who picked those beans is going to be uh, cared for in a you know humane, fair way. It's going to get a decent amount of money for their for their product. Exactly. Um, and you, you kind of hit something on the head when you said seeing that fair trade label. There's a really big distinction between a a product that carries a certified fair trade label yeah. and something that's marketed as fairly traded. That means nothing. It's <laughs> It means absolutely yeah. nothing. Like that, that they might as well say like the contents inside are orange and green maybe. Yeah, it's the whole mislabeling, misleading, mis- misleading labeling of things. Yeah, which is just pretty- like the organic deal, certified organic versus these, you know, this crap food that will say like contains naturally right. uh, natural ingredients or things like that. Yeah, Emily has to fight this battle all the time with her company because she's one of the people that tries to only use. You know, fair trade ingredients and 100% certified organic. And she gets angry every day when she sees products, body products that slap something on their label like naturally good. And people think that means it's all natural. Right. Or all natural. That doesn't mean that it's 100% organic or all natural. It's no, just, no. It's, it needs to be regulated more. Than and it's so, that's such a cynical thing to exploit. Yeah. Like oh, something totally. that really meant something at one point in time for. Dollars, yeah, you know, to to market something that doesn't mean anything. It's actually not good for you, and marketing it as good for you, yeah, while using an already established um, consumer trusted label or, or phrasing. Yeah. That's just that's sad. It's one. It's one of the wrong things in the world. But let's just say that that's why fair trade people, fair trade groups have um, they jealously guard their uh, their um, labels. Yeah. So that when you do see them, you you can't trust what's going on. Yeah, and you know companies that mislabel or mislead with their labels also make their labels look like the other labels even, <laughs> and the font and the color is just like it's so underhanded. Yeah, it's really awful. So let's talk about the background of this. All right, it started in the 1950s with something called alternative trade organizations mm-hmm. (ATOs), not the fraternity ATOs. <laughs> All right, they were doing beer bongs and you know other things. Uh, I couldn't say what I was going to say. <laughs> I think everybody knows. Uh, they were humanitarian groups uh, that started this, and basically they wanted to alleviate poverty in developing nations by cutting out middlemen between small producers in the north, uh, northern hemisphere, and small businesses in the southern hemisphere. Right. Which meant more profits directly going to workers who picked the bean. Yeah. Again, with coffee. And then I guess over time they, they found that this this process could work, but you really do need middlemen, right? So yeah, not always, but depending on where you are in the process, sure. Right, but the, if you're using the existing, I guess, trade routes yeah, and, yeah. and system of trade that's been established globally in in the world, um, you there are middlemen. Like you, you have a, a a coffee grower in Ethiopia, he can't get that to you, you know, in yeah. New England. You do need a middleman. 
what they figured out with fair trade is that you can certify the people in between to make sure that the money is getting to the producer. And rather than cutting out the middleman to increase the income of the of the original producer in the developing country, you go to the consumer on the consuming end and say, hey, you mind paying a little more for this? And in return, we will guarantee you that this the person you who made this coffee that you're yeah. enjoying gets that money, that yeah. extra money. Yeah. Like you are basically essentially sending it to this guy and we're the ones who are going to make sure that happens. And we're going to do so through this labeling. That's right. Uh, and in 1988 is actually when the labeling itself was born with uh, a Dutch ATO called uh, Solidaridad. Is that not right? Solidaridad. Did you see we got yet another like uh, email about our pronunciation? <laughs> we try, people. That's part of the charm of the show. Some people don't like it. I understand that. Um, so Solidaridad from uh, from the Dutch region of the world, from Amsterdam, from the Netherlands, yeah. from Holland, from all those places. Yeah. They said, you know what? We should label these things, help people out when they're shopping, uh, get them into Main Street markets without compromising you know, the the trust that consumer has in these products. And that is basically where fair trade uh, was born. And we do have one stat here uh, in 2001, not super recent, but just to show you and uh, how people pay for coffee, coffee fluctuates in price. It's like, you know, any it's commodity. commodity yeah. So uh, in 2001, the price dipped really low and the coffee growers were receiving only about 45 cents per pound for coffee. But fair trade coffee buyers paid a dollar twenty-one per pound that year to ensure that these people, despite the fluctuations, were able to keep the lights on for their business. Essentially, right. because every fair trade organization sets a minimum price, a minimum fair price. Yeah, that their their producers are going to get, no matter what, no matter what the market does, no matter what. And I believe if the market goes up, they get they get the higher of the two. Oh, okay. But at the very least, they're getting that minimum right. price for their product. So what is an FLO? This is sort of how it starts, or how the process itself starts. Oh, you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. The, fair, right. the fair Trade Labeling Organization. So the, the, that's that's one of them. There's a, there's a number of or, labeling organizations. Like there's Transfer USA. There's a European, European Fair Trade Association, right? Mm-hmm. And apparently, I guess the FLO is like the... The agency that oversees the agencies. Oh, is that what it is? That's the impression that I have. Okay. But basically, say that you want to, um, say that you, you are a coffee roaster. And again, we're going with coffee because that's the big one. Yeah. And you say, Hey, I really want to get in on this fair trade action for whatever reason. It doesn't matter if you want to increase your own sales or whatever. It doesn't matter. There's, you can't exploit this process, right? Uh, yeah, sure. No, but that's the thing. Like, yeah, like the coffee roaster can be like, you know, everybody's into this fair trade thing, and I think I can sell a lot more if I yeah. go through this process. So let me do it. Right. And they contact the FLO or a labeling organization. They say, "Great, we will sell you a license for ten thousand pounds of fair trade coffee beans." Yeah. So it's a contract for a set amount. Yes. Now, what they could do is set the um, coffee roaster up with an already certified fair trade. Um, producer yeah. and supply chain, or they can go in and say, uh, we can go ahead and certify your existing supply chain yeah. 
and producer. And that's what they do. The the coffee roaster pays for that license, mm-hmm. sends the FLO out. They go through the supply chain, make sure that all this money is going back to the producer who is expected to get it, right? Yeah, and they actually send people, human people, yeah. visit farms right. to ensure that all their business practices and their farmers are, are adhering to these procedures, which and, we're going to And not about. only that, they also add a dash of like sustainability, like they're, that they're not using like horrible environmental techniques for sure. this stuff. And, but yes, basically to make sure that this producer isn't just like a, you know, dole disguised as like some, some dude. Right. You know, yeah, like yeah. they're going and doing some detective work. And once they figure out that everything's legit and it falls into the um, fair trade standards, which uh-huh. we'll talk about later, then that's certified. The license is exercised and that 10,000 pounds is delivered. And that guy can put that on the, that 10,000 pounds. Yeah. And it's not always just a one time visit. They can also follow up with periodic inspections to ensure that, you know, that you keep up with that kind of governance and you didn't just like pull a fast one on them and. You know, get out your house in order for one day. You know, while they came in, right? Exactly. Paid you a visit. And there, there's uh, the license is usually there's like there's a contract involved. Like so, the middlemen who are involved have to participate in these standards. And one of yeah. the standards is you have to sign like a, at least a six month contract usually, which is actually kind of a lot for these producers because a middleman can be like, oh, this guy's selling it for way cheaper. I'm going over to him. Yeah. No, this producer's guaranteed six months of going to this middleman. And um and getting the money from them. Well, yeah, and like you said, six months doesn't sound like much, but I get the feeling that it was just like it's the Wild West out there. Yeah. You know, like you can drop someone from day to day. Yeah, well, they can be like, well, this guy's selling it for a penny less, and you force this guy down, and now this guy's down to two cents. So you go to another guy and be like, this guy's down to two cents. You can just play as many small farmers as you want against off uh, against one another. And, right. and drive prices down as low as you want. Right. The fair trade prevents that from happening by forcing uh, middlemen to, to sign a contract. Yeah, so that's one of the tenets. Um, another is direct trade between the producers and buyers. So they try to eliminate the middleman when they can. In Central America, they call the middleman a coyote. Yeah, they do. I thought that was interesting. Um, so in order to do this, they encourage these farmers to get together and form co-ops, export co-ops, uh, band together. You know, you've got a little more power. Um, so something that, that he points out here too is that the exporter, if it's a plantation, the fair trade, uh, standard requires that national laws governing the minimum wage, uh, and regulations governing the conditions be upheld and the workers' rights are all upheld as well. Right. So that's when you're not, I guess, forming a co-op. No, um, but fair trade tends to encourage co-ops, uh, democratically run co-ops. Sure. Um, but yeah, they're 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 ne- they're not necessarily completely opposed to the idea of um, certifying something that's run as a plantation rather than a co-op, as long right. as the workers are treated well. And one of the other things they do, like if there is a, a if they do run into a, a plantation system, uh-huh. and the workers are fine, everything's good, they attach what's called a social premium. Yeah. So if you are um, say there's a chocolate importer called uh, Double Chocolate, D U B B L E, I think it's in the U K. And they, they sell fair trade chocolate. And they uh, on their site, they were saying that they pay an extra, um, I think, $200 a ton of cocoa, per uh-huh. ton of cocoa. And that's just a social premium. That's on top of whatever the market price is or whatever the minimum fair trade price is, right. whatever's higher. In addition to that, they pay an extra 200 bucks right off the top for a ton of cocoa. And that is that doesn't necessarily go right back to the um, the, the producer. 
it goes back to the producer's community. Right. And is used for things like scholarships, water projects, sanitation projects, like schools, whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's that social premium is in addition yeah. to raising the individual's income, it raises the, the, the well-being of the entire community. Yeah. Well, with the idea, too, that that's just going to be good for everyone's business, ultimately. Well, yeah, that's the thing. That's that's where it's kind of, it turns capitalism in on, uh, it, on itself. Like, yeah. the idea that you can democratize through capitalism is a huge, like, neocon idea. Yeah. And, it, I mean, it's true. Like, it, it does work. Um but they're saying, but we need to do that through a certain measure of Marxism. Right. It's kind of kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the final tenet, which you already sort of mentioned, was the minimum prices for farmers. The idea, what they want here, is obviously to make sure that the price that the farmer gets is more than the cost of production, because you know everyone's out to make a, a dollar here and there. Right. Um, and so they actually take a survey um, to make sure that the you know the price is right on the money. And it covers things like uh, the cost of living, um, cost of production, and even the cost of complying with the fair trade standard. So they roll that in there as part of their accounting as well. Yeah, and we should say also, um, it, it is the the to purchase a um, a license for, for fair trade stuff. Uh-huh. It's on the ultimate, uh, I guess, distributor, the coffee roaster in the case of coffee. Yeah, um, or the chocolate producer in the case of cocoa purchases, whatever. Um, and before, I think until 2004, like it was free if you were the actual person producing like the, the raw material, the good, like the coffee or the cocoa. Yeah. Um, but then the FLO said, you know what? We need to charge you guys a little bit too. So I think that further encourages co-ops because a small right. farmer in, in, you know, Ethiopia can't necessarily afford whatever it costs to be in the system. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And let's, let's take a second here, Chuck. Um, to remind people exactly what the disparity is between the people who eat the chocolate and the people who produce the cocoa. Okay. So say you were uh, living in uh, Timor-Leste in Southeast Africa in 2005. Uh-huh. Guess how much your um, annual income would be expected to be? Well, what am I doing? Am I uh, growing You're just a, a resident of it. Okay. You're, you're doing whatever you want, but you're you're an average- I have a pedicab. T- okay. You have a pedicab? Uh-huh. Since you live in Timor Leste, I think I'm saying that right. Lest, one of the two. <laughs> Man, I hope I'm saying that right. You made four hundred dollars in two thousand five. Four hundred dollars for the whole year in two thousand five. Wow. In Malawi, you made five hundred ninety-six dollars. In Somalia, six hundred dollars. In Congo, six seventy-five. For a year. A year. Wow. Three hundred and sixty-five days of labor. Or a large portion of 365 days. I take Christmas off in the pedicab, by the way. All right, 364 days of labor yeah. got you 400 bucks in Timor Leste. Um, on the high end in Eritrea, you made a whopping 917 dollars. In the United States in 2005, the average U- U- U.S. citizen mm-hmm. spends 114 dollars a day. Spends. Yeah. So, that's that's the concept of fair trade. Is like you have. This extra couple of dollars, pay it for this, and we will make sure that that guy in Eritrea yeah. gets it, and he's going to benefit. And, and in fact, the whole world will benefit because there's that whole democratic peace theory, where like uh, supposedly there's a correlation between democratization and a decrease in war, yeah, and belligerence between nations. So who knows? It could just be beneficial for everybody. Yeah, and this isn't welfare. This isn't. 
uh, taking from the rich and giving, taxing the rich and giving it to the poor who, you know, can't get off their butts and go work. These are people working very hard at their job that you are ultimately benefiting from when you take that sip of coffee that you're enjoying. And it's, it's like, we did it in our own country when we started, uh, enacting, like saying, hey, kids shouldn't work in factories. Yeah. And they shouldn't make eight cents a week. We did it here and the fair trade label ensures that wherever your product is coming from around the world, that the same thing is going to be, you know, happening. Yeah, it's, it's intervention and exploitation. But there are still critics. Yeah, there are definitely critics and criticisms, um, in, with fair trade. And I mean, they're legitimate too. Yeah, I mean, not a lot of criticisms about people saying, hey, you shouldn't do this and take care of workers. There's right. Probably, there's probably a handful of people out there that think that. It's more the, um, but generally, yeah, it's, it's a not. criticism of fair trade and the fair trade organizations, not of the people who are actually, you know, producing this stuff. Yeah, basically saying uh, you're ignoring the basic tenets of supply and demand in a way because you're you're attaching an inflated price above the market value j- without doing anything else. Right, and because it's difficult to kind of get these things to market more difficult than than a regular thing there's been a real focus on things like coffee yeah. or bananas so in these areas where you can grow coffee and can grow bananas since fair trade is saying hey if you grow this stuff and you do it the way we want you to you'll get four times what you know you're getting paid without us right more people are going to flock from cotton to coffee yeah. and there's going to be an oversupply and that's ultimately going to drive prices down for everybody right uh, another criticism is that fair trade generally um, addresses these co-ops that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And maybe if you were just a single farmer, that's like, I don't want to be in a co-op, uh, but I still want to be fair trade. It's a little more difficult. Yeah. And um, these co-ops, just like anything else, when you get more than two people together in a room, there is a possibility for greed and corruption. So uh, some of these co-ops have been attacked for mismanaging fair trade proceeds and, uh, Supporters say, you know what, we, we can only do what we can. We're trying our best. We're not saying we're going to solve the world's poverty problems. Right. But what we are saying is that we can ensure that these farmers and these co-ops and these workers are getting paid a fair wage, enough to live on uh, when you eat your delicious or drink your delicious roasted coffees. Yeah. And I guess I, I the, the one that makes the most sense to me is the, uh, the encouraging oversupply on the market and driving down prices for other people and everybody in general. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and it really that that could be very easily solved by just focusing on other products as well. Yeah, right now they, the um, they say about 800,000 farmers are benefiting from fair trade right now uh, worldwide. That was a, yeah, that's an 08 stat. So I bet it's over a million now. Yeah. Because it's growing, baby. Yeah, I mean, that was another thing, too, is the, the sectors are growing, too. Like uh, in the early 2000s, fair trade coffee grew like 74%. Within a couple of years. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, like, it's a good way to go if you're a poverty-stricken coffee farmer. Yeah, and it depends on where you are, what kind of products are available. It's not like everything you find in your grocery store will have a fair trade option. Um, Yeah, but it's kind of been presented and marketed in a real, like, laid-back, hippie granola way. (laughs) And it's like, like, hey, we'll put it out there and tell people about it. And if they want it, that's awesome. There's been no, like... The, the, if you took the same kind of marketing, uh, that's applied to stuff that's not produced fairly 
and applied it to fairly traded stuff, I'm quite sure you could generate a lot more interest and have people clamoring for like, I want fairly traded beef or whatever. Yeah. People are going to want that stuff. They just don't know that they want it yet necessarily. And I think that they're, I think that the NGOs who are doing fair trade could do more to diversify. That's excellent. If I'm wrong, correct me, someone who's in the field. You got anything else? No, that's it for fair trade. Hey, speaking of NGOs, our favorite co-ed, Cooperative for Education. Yeah. They are who took us down to Guatemala, and we got to see their handiwork in person, and it is good work. Yeah, they they seek to uh, break the cycle of poverty uh, using education, and yeah. they've got a great model. We, like you said, we've seen it firsthand. We believe in it, and so we um, are making a call out here. We're plugging for them because they have uh, – th- well, they're in need. Okay. They uh, are looking to triple the number of students they serve over the next three years, so they're going to need the help of some stuff you should know, listeners. All right, so we got some details for you folks. Uh, the who of this – we're talking 54 indigenous Mayan middle school students. Right. Like, right. These students are getting help, literally, like firsthand help. Yeah, they're getting help f- through scholarships that cover tuition, school fees, and a youth development program that fosters community service and leadership among the students, right? There are two scholarship levels. There's a diploma sponsor, which is 70 bucks a month. Yeah. And there's an honor roll sponsor, which is 35 bucks a month. Those are some cute names. Okay. <laughs> That's very cute. So uh, when all this is going down is uh, they want 54 students sponsored by the end of the year, mm-hmm. the end of 2013. Right. Is there anything greater, Josh, than finding a sponsor for every single student? No. And we can do it. I mean, we have a lot of listeners, and we have a lot of listeners with big hearts. Actually, there is one thing greater. They could cover these students and have a waiting list for next year. Oh, that'd be even better. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is how you do this, guys. You can go to the website, www.cooperativeforeducation.org, and you can sign up to sponsor a child today. Simply click on the Donate Now button in the top right hand of the corner. That's right. And you know what? A lot of our uh, listeners have gotten involved over the years with co-ed and gotten a lot out of it in return as humans, as humans. Yeah, it's a genuinely great organization that we've seen, like you said, firsthand. Um, so we would encourage all of you to go help. So that's um, cooperativeforeducation.org. Yeah. You can become either a uh, very cutely named diploma sponsor at uh-huh. 70 bucks a month or an honor roll sponsor at 35 bucks a month. And uh, if you do that, if you sign up for it, let us know. Yeah. Because we want to thank you on the air. Sure. Cool. That's a great idea. So go co-ed. Go co-ed. Thanks, friends. So, okay. Uh, Chuck, hold on. Let's uh, let's take a message break, huh? Yeah. And then listener mail, a really good one this week. Right. All right. Stuff you should know. Oh, uh, and now it's time for listener mail, says Jerry. Yeah, I'm going to call this... Uh, Grief. We got a lot of really great responses on the Grief podcast. A lot of people reached out and were like, had just had people pass away in their family and listened to the podcast that week and it helped them out. And uh, we always like hearing those things. So this is from John. Uh, Guys, I'd like to thank you for your Grief podcast. It helped me with the grieving process uh, for my best friend and brother, Mike, uh, in his death. He was driving in northern Alberta uh, in mid-December when he lost control of his car after crossing railroad tracks got hit by an oncoming car and died on impact. Uh, Our family flew there from Vancouver and only had a few hours to spend because of some flight mishaps. We couldn't even bring his ashes back with us. Mailing his ashes uh, was not recommended until the end of the Christmas season, so we are planning on having a funeral for him uh, without ashes. Luckily, the company he was uh, to work for, he was a heavy equipment mechanic and student at the time, um, uh, they heard of the news and their head safety guy personally delivered his ashes to our home. We then flew to Manila on Christmas Day and arrived back in Canada on New Year's. 
I haven't felt the usual symptoms of grief yet, but I'm sure I'll break down and start bawling on the sea bus or something, which would be super awkward. Uh, the first month was definitely the hardest. The moment I always, uh, the moment I heard the news has been burnt in my mind, that and a single flower in front of his dorm room from one of the students. Uh, the tears really started flowing after I saw that, guys, and I saw life in a completely different way. The little things really do count. Anyway, Mike was most likely listening to podcasts at the time. That's what he does when he buys groceries. He was on the way to the grocery store. Uh, your voices, in fact, may have been the last he heard. Who knows? Wow. Uh, there was a frozen pineapple in the crash site, and I know that was his because he loved that stuff. With that said, just in case he's listening to the podcast in another life, could you please do one on pineapples? <laughs> and that would be for Mike and uh, John. We will certainly look into pineapples, my friend. That's and, pretty uh, cool. Yeah, I think we should. Yeah, hang in there, dude. It's very tough. I can't imagine going through something like that, but I'm glad we could help in some small, tiny, tiny way. Yeah, and thanks for letting us know about that. We appreciate it. Um, wow, that was uh, you selected maybe the best one. Yeah, and we got some good emails about grief too. Yeah, thanks to everyone who sent those in, and like people bear their souls sometimes. It's very touching. Yeah, we hope we make you feel better. Uh, if you uh, want to uh, tell us a story about how we made your family feel a little bit better, or you, or whatever, as long as we didn't make you feel worse. Although we should probably hear about that too. Sure. You can uh, tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at Discovery.com. And you can join us at our website, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Should Know is brought to you by Audible.com.